So we're in Jude 1 to 4. Right? Since there's only one chapter, we don't no need to say Jude chapter 1. And uh, uh, there's a, one of my favorite sermons I ever heard at, at Southern. It was by Vody Bauckham, for those who maybe uh, recognize him. Uh, he came and uh, preached Jude 1 to 4. It was really good. And uh, he said here at the beginning, he said, if I have to explain to you that it's not chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, you have to start your seminary training all over again. So uh, I think he's right. Uh, my home pastor didn't like it when people would say um, Psalms chapter 23 because they're not chapters. They're Psalms. So you say Psalm 23. Um, but we all have the, those weird things about us. Um, I just, just asked my wife, I think you should fold the towel vertically in half, not like fold it over, you know, um, so if you hold it out horizontally and fold it that way, no, 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 no. All right, that is a big no, and I will go to the grave believing it's the proper way. Um, well, let's play a, a bit of a game as we get started. Here we go. Uh, who said the following? All right, I don't know what game this is, but... Uh, what uh, is? <laughs> yeah, we'll start here. Uh, Ruth turns to Naomi and says, I shall not leave thee. She makes her statement to this woman that sounds somewhat somewhere uh, in between poetry, intimacy, and borders on, you see it there. People don't even know how to explain what Ruth said to Naomi. It makes them uncomfortable. They're afraid to talk about it. They don't want to teach on it. Same thing with David and Jonathan, where there was a same gender relationship getting too close. People don't know what to say. Same person said this, there is one God, creator of all things, infinitely perfect and eternally now read your rest existing in three manifestations father son and holy spirit right? you understand that manifestations is not the same language as persons i know it's a bit theologically wonky it's quite significant that is to say that uh, much as i may over here be a son over here i may be a father over here i may be a husband so too god over here may be father god may be three manifest manifestations so any idea who's, who, who said these two things if you had a guess it's heresy, both of them. Right, here he is, the bishop. The bishop. Uh, T.D. Jakes has, has been a modalist, of really, for his entire ministry. Uh, when uh, when uh, confronted on it, he will back away. It's called modalism in that God was in the mode of the Father in the Old Testament, the mode of the Son in the Gospels, the mode of um, uh, the... Uh, other movements hold to that. Uh, William Brenham, for those who may be familiar with William Brenham out of Louisville at Southern Indiana, um, um, he was a modalist. I ran into some old Brenhamites when I was at Goshen, um, and they, they argue this. Um, he did a thing with James McDonald where he sort of backed away from it, but he was never really confronted on it. His website articulated modalism. So I don't know what his website says now, but that is not an old, old um, quote. And the one about Ruth and Naomi, uh, he was really one of the more prominent figures to say something like that. Who uh, said this, Jesus was asleep on a small boat when suddenly a huge storm arose. The winds were fierce and strong, batting the boat back and forth. The disciples got all upset and were afraid. They finally said, Jesus, please get up. We're about to perish. Jesus got up and simply spoke to the storm. He said, peace be still. Instantly, the wind subsided and the Sea of Galilee turned to a glassy calm. The reason Jesus was able to bring peace to that situation was because he had peace inside himself. He was in the storm, but he didn't let the storm get in him. Any idea? Hold on to Joyce Meyer. You're thinking right. It's your, your boy. Right? Now, for you two, who is Joel Osteen? Sorry. And for your boys over here, there he is. Kanye and uh, uh, Robert Kardashian's daughter, for you O.J. Simpson fans, right? <laughs> you know, Kardashian, you mean the guy that represented O.J., right? That family? They got their own TV show now? Anyways, uh, so there you go, Joel Osteen. Uh, of course, you see the point he's making there, is in that point, you are no different than Jesus. So the picture of calming the storm isn't that Jesus has supernatural ability because he's the Son of God, it's because he had peace with himself. So in your life, if you want peace, you've got to find it in yourself. It's, it's very Gnostic, Oprahism now. It's very Gnostic, which is really what Jude is dealing with here, probably an early version of it. Um, God is not magnified when you are broke, busted, or disgusted. 
<laughs> Pre-Folsom Prism uh, concert, probably. Yeah, yeah. This one isn't Joyce Meyer, but you're, you're, to me, I think she, she's a discount Joyce Meyer. Paula White. Now, Paula White was the primary spiritual advisor to uh, Donald Trump during his, his administration. Does it make sense? <laughs> Donald Trump um, comes out of Norman Vincent Peale's church. You're probably familiar with the power of positive thinking, um, the power of positive prayer, power of positive, all this sort of stuff. That is, um, uh, it's, it's not new age. It's, um, oh, the term's leaving. We've talked about it here before. Basically, the idea is that this is where Olstein gets it. Olstein really comes from Robert Schuller. Schuller really comes from, from uh, Norman Vincent Peale. Peale's books are still around, uh, read quite a bit, that, that if you can speak things into existence, um, that's, that's a very pagan idea. It's not a Christian idea. Uh, well, when we get the Meyer, I, I think the quote I have uh, reflects that, that, that sort of language. So, so if you want peace, you will speak peace into a situation. Um, and if you want money, all this, both the soft and the hardcore prosperity people say you will speak it into existence. So God doesn't want you broke, busted, and disgusted. Well, it rhymes, but you can add to that uh, sick and whatnot. Of course, these people, all of them die from sickness. All of them do. Uh, of course, William Brenham died in a car wreck. Shame he couldn't prevent that since he is the seventh angel of, of revelation, he claimed. Um, if you stay in your faith, you're going to get paid. I am now living in my reward. Same person said, the key to partaking of the life and healing energy in the word is feeding on it until it penetrates your spirit where it deposits that life and energy. Now, have you ever been in, in, in Baptist context, uh, uh, Christian context in terms of the denomination, um, Catholic context, Presbyterian, Mormon? I mean, have you ever been in any conservative evangelical? I know Mormon's not evangelical context where the energy was ever used like this or even at all this is much more star wars isn't it it's the force all right this is why we, we believe that the spirit is a person not a thing or a force uh, it, it avoids a lot of these errors so this uh, is joyce meyer uh, one of the things i've found over the years um is with great trepidation you you, you point out the problems with Osteen's theology which should be easy every sermon he doesn't mention sin but I've found that if you want to get in trouble, don't go after Osteen, go after Joyce Meyer. Uh, Joyce Meyer has shaped uh, particularly women's ministry. And you, you, if you're a male pastor, which, yeah, um, you should not cross the women's ministry. Is that, is that, is that too on the nose? Did that just offend somebody? Um, so that means you don't mess with Beth Moore and Joyce Meyer. I, I, I like Beth Moore just fine. Joyce Meyer is a real problem. I think she's backed off some of the prosperity stuff, but it's still there. So whether you're a soft or, or a hard prosperity preacher, it's, it's still there. And she has used language of energy and force throughout her writings and, and other stuff. So uh, how about this one? I, th I think this is the last one. I got two examples. Um, I used to think that pagans in far-off countries were lost. They were going to hell if they did not have the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to them. I no longer believe that. I believe there are other ways of recognizing the existence of God. Through nature, for instance, and plenty of other opportunities, therefore, saying yes to God. Uh, I believe in the same interview. Don't quote me on that. Uh, this person said he's calling people out of the world for his name's Jesus, of course, whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the Christian world or the non-believing world. They are members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. They may not even know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something that they don't have. And they turn to the only light that they have. And I think they are saved and that they are going to be with us in heaven. This one's going to surprise you. It's Billy Graham. Yeah. Um, I've read a handful of biographies, long and short, on him. And, and some will deal with that, but they don't deal with it in, in much detail. Uh, there's a David Aiken, I think I think. Aikman. Uh, he wrote a book on the new atheist when it was cool back in the day. That's how I was introduced to him. He's got a uh, sort of biography on Billy Graham. It's not a strict biography. And he has a whole chapter dedicated to some of this. Uh, this is later on in his life. Of course, he, he lived almost 100. So the last 20, 30 years of his life, uh, these, these quotes came out. Um, and so uh, certainly the Billy Graham of the L.A. Crusade and New York Crusade and all that would, would not have spoken like that. Um, so I'm a Billy Graham fan. I got a whole shelf dedicated to, to, to Billy, but uh, those are troublesome quotes, aren't they? Uh, yeah. His prayer at the 
Yeah, it's very ecumenical. Um, September 14th, 2001, it, it shaped me. My students in my civics class, we had them watch the W speech. But I remember you had a Muslim representative come up. Because in a very liberal church, it's a historic church, a very liberal church. That may have been the church where Trump went and held the Bible for the photo op. It was kind of not the best of photo ops. That was his version of, of W's flyover of Katrina. Just just didn't go over the way he wanted it. But uh, I think it's the same church. Uh, and I remember that, that Billy Graham was very neutral. Um, of course, that's... That was after the, these quotes. By the way, those quotes were on the Robert Schuller uh, Hour of Power. Is that what he called it? In the Crystal Cathedral. Yeah. By the way, the Crystal Cathedral, they declared bankruptcy. His daughter became the pastor. Actually, the whole family sort of did. His daughter in particular. And I believe the Catholic Church owns the Crystal Cathedral now. And, and uh, Robert Schuller, who's just a wild guy, um, his book, I think it really shapes his theology, is called A New Reformation. Um, and uh, his, uh, that's the subtitle. Um, oh, self-esteem, the new reformation. I think that's what it's called. And his idea that we shouldn't talk about sin anymore, we should talk about self-esteem. Uh, well, that's just heresy, my friend, you know. Um, so, so why do we do this? Well, um, because obviously Jude deals with false teaching. I think a lot of people are surprised by particularly what is popular. I used to work in Christian retail, did it for five years. Um, and... Uh, um, I think people w- would be surprised uh, by what we sold uh, under the, the, the name of, of Christian. Um, and I remember one time in particular, someone asked about one of these authors. I won't tell you which one because I'm probably in enough trouble. And I remember they, they brought it to me. They said, what about this book? And I was supposed to be a salesman. So I had to sell the book. But then there was that part of me that thought, go somewhere else. Right? Read fiction. It's the same difference. So I remember saying... That is a very popular book. <laughs> My boss is standing like right there. That's a popular book. That's the way I got out of that. And that's when I declared um, to be mayor. Oh, okay. So, uh, so Martin Luther, uh, in this context, says, If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. So the point is to say that Jude is dealing with, with corruption within the church, theological corruption that is, that is manifests itself in, in uh, immoral corruption in the church. And so Jude, although he, he initially wanted to write about one thing, is, is compelled, he says, to write about something else. Why? For, for the very reason Luther has it up here. And one of the reasons I think American evangelicalism is as sickly as it is is because, frankly, we've tolerated a lot of things um, unnecessarily. Uh, and, and some some quite dangerous things. Well, let's start here. Uh, I don't want to spend forever on this, but this may be a point uh, you may find fascinating. Maybe one day we'll do a, a broader study of how did we get the Bible. Uh, but should the book of Jude even be in the Bible? You ever thought about that, that you go to the store or Amazon, whatever, you buy your Bible, there it is, bada bing, bada boom. And you never really think about, well, these books had a genesis, and at some point they had to go from being a letter to a group of people to something that we now call the Bible. So, so uh, were some of them controversial? Or were some immediately received? Uh, well, we won't be able to do the broad. I just want to look at Jude um, because it was one of the more controversial ones. You, you probably can anticipate that because think about it. Um, no one ever talks about Jude's like Obadiah. It's the New Testament version of Obadiah. Um, we don't read it. Um, it's, it's too close to Revelation to care. And 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he's just so nice. You don't want to put up with Jude. So, so just keep reading John. Just skip Jude, right? Uh, so we do skip it. So should Jude be in the Bible? Well, as briefly as we can, there are three criteria. There's more than that, but just broadly speaking, three criteria for a book to be in, in the Bible, in particular the New Testament. The first is authority. That is to say, it had to be penned by an apostle or someone associated with the apostle. So Paul wrote Romans. Well, there you go. I mean, we saw last week, Paul says, you received our word not as the word of man, but as it really is the word of God. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, so, so yeah, it comes from the apostle. Luke's gospel is not 
from an apostle, but from one closely associated with apostle. That's Paul, and he clearly spoke to others. Um, the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who the writer is, but clearly whoever it might be is or is closely associated with, with, with an apostle. James, uh, is his authority in the church. I believe Paul calls an apostle in Galatians. I could be wrong. Um, but Jude, you see here there in verse 1, Jude 1, he identifies himself as a servant. The Greek word there is doulos, meaning slave, of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So you see that he has identified himself, not as the half-brother of Jesus, which he could have done. That's who I think wrote this. Uh, but he identifies himself with James, the, the bishop of Jerusalem. And we talked about it in some details. I don't spend forever on it. Um, and so his connection to, to James and Jesus, I, I think, uh, sneaks him in there. Uh, also, uh, orthodoxy. That is, it cannot contradict anything already considered scripture or orthodox theology. Now, we should note Jude offers no new doctrine. It is the uh, only book exclusively dedicated to false teachers and false uh, doctrine. Um, and he makes it at least... Uh, so, so there's that. So he doesn't have new doctrine. He assumes all the doctrines of the Bible, right? Um, now, when he assumes those, he, he will address them. Uh, so he uses words like mercy, peace, and love. Uh, as we'll see in verse 2, I think it is, he doesn't mention grace, which is striking. Um, however, the, the controversial part of Jude is that he quotes from non-biblical books. In verse 9, he quotes from a book called The Assumption, or that is The Testament of Moses. I believe we only have that in part. I don't think we have the whole book. I could be wrong. Uh, verse 14, he quotes from First Enoch. Enoch. Um, you can get online. You can read these. Uh, First Enoch, uh, if, if you uh, watch a lot of ancient aliens, um, First Enoch is mentioned all the time. Uh, the watchers come down, and we'll talk about First Enoch when we get down to verse 14. Uh, now, this fact does not mean, um, I don't think should determine whether or not it should be in the canon or out. What a lot of people do is, is they say, well, if Jude quotes from the book, it must theref- that book he quotes from must therefore be in the Bible. So why isn't First Enoch in the Bible? Um, well, that's, that's, that's just not the case at all. In fact, if you read the Bible, the writers are quoting people all the time. In fact, already today, I've quoted from about six people, right? And, and we don't think, well, therefore, because you quoted them, you must therefore affirm everything they said and consider it gospel. Well, no, that's sort of the point of quoting them. Um, if, if we quote someone of, a, of an authority, we're not saying everything they've ever said and written or that document itself is fully authoritative. We're saying that for the purpose that I'm making, the argument I'm making, I'm going to borrow from that, right? So let me give you a few examples of other biblical writers doing this. Um, Moses here in Acts 17 is quoting from a, a, a Cretan a poet, uh, Epimendus. Uh, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Now, is Paul saying all the writings of this Cretan poet should be in the Bible? No. Right. He's saying, look, he's using their own poets and philosophers against them, which I, I really think that's what Jude's doing here. First Corinthians fifteen thirty three: do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. How many of us quote this all the time? Well, it's in the Bible, yeah. But the genesis of it is, is, is an ancient comedy. I can't pronounce who wrote it and what it's called. Um, so, yeah, it is true. Uh, it's a good proverb, but it doesn't originate in with the Bible. By the way, while I'm thinking of it, you can do the same thing with the, uh, um, the golden rule. Love, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's not original with Jesus. Buddha said that. I think Confucius said that. It doesn't mean that it's pagan. It's kind of common sense, isn't it? Look, if, if, if you're mean to someone and then you complain that, that they're mean to you, to you, that's a hypocrite, right? I mean, it's just common sense, right? Uh, be good to other people and, and treat them as you would want to be treated. Um, 2 Timothy 3.8, just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, right? Now, notice here, Moses is telling us the primary magicians that opposed Moses. You remember, they, they throw down this staff and it turns into a snake, but Moses' staff turns into, you know, eats it and all that sort of stuff. Well, where in Exodus does it tell us their names were Jonas and Jambres? It doesn't. He's getting this. Uh, I'll make sure I get it right. Um, he's getting it from Pliny. Uh, Pliny the... When was Pompeii Bay? 23 to 70 AD. When's, Pliny, when's Pompeii? Is that in the 50s? 
All right, it's one of the Plenty's, Plenty the Elder, Plenty Younger, and some other cat I can't pronounce his name. I thought it was Josephus, but it may be Josephus. Um, early church father uh, Origen um, suggested there was a book called the Book of Jonas and Jambres. Now, were the magicians actually named this? I don't know. The point is, is that Paul is citing a tradition. This is their name. Um, what about Titus chapter 1? One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy. Now, one of the things I like about this is Paul saying, look, I didn't say this. <laughs> right. That's not my words. I'm just quoting, right? It's, it's footnoted and everything in the scroll. I didn't say this. Um, but he's uh, quoting from uh, a 6th century B.C. Um, person. How about Hebrews eleven thirty seven? And notice that uh, when he's going through like all the bad things that happen to the people of faith, this faith hall of fame, which contradicts prosperity gospel preaching, if only they would read it. One of them is that they, that is some of these saints, one of them was sawn in two. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, no one is, is cut in half. No one. But there is a tradition. Uh, it's from a book called um, The Martyrdom of Isaiah that suggests that Isaiah was sawn in two. Now, is the biblical writer saying, look, it is canon now, this is how Isaiah died? I don't think so. He's saying, look, the tradition is we love Isaiah. In fact, we did this a few weeks ago with, with the 12 disciples, right? We would say, look, Peter was beheaded uh, in the 60s under Nero. Where is that found in the Bible? It ain't. Or he was crucified upside down, Paul beheaded. Well, none of that's found in the Bible. Uh, but that tradition certainly sticks around, doesn't it? Um, so so that, that tradition is, is mentioned there. Uh, and then we mentioned last week, here's a bunch of books referenced in the Bible that are not in the Bible. This is just the Old Testament. Right. Doesn't mean that if we ever find the book of Gad the seer, uh, we should add it right in behind Malachi. Right? That's, that's not what, what we think at all. By the way, this is what the uh, Mormons believe, sort of. They are waiting to discover more books. One of them is the pure book of Enoch. And there's others. Uh, so they don't believe... What we call First Enoch is the, the original. They're still waiting to discover it. And, and apparently parts of what they believe is the book of Enoch is found in the Doctrine of Covenants in a book called Moses. Um, I think it's chapters 5 and 6, or so I was reading it today. Um, so you have, you have unity or, or authority, orthodoxy, and then unity. Uh, that is to say, it had to be accepted by the early church and used in worship. Think about it. We stand up here. One of our deacons will read from Scripture. And, and they understand they have responsibility to, to read from Scripture or whatnot. None of them stand up here and read from Sports Illustrated. Right? They're, they're not going to read from Reader's Digest. Is that still around, by the way? Did I just date myself? You know, you know like the Reader's Digest, like the condensed? Okay, that's a no. The young people have spoken. That's a no. Okay. Right. Go to Goodwill and you'll find someone who is deceased. The, the, the kids didn't know what to do with them. And so here's grandma's Reader's Digest, you know, books of the year condensed, you know. Um, there you go. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So next time we make those uh, hymnal angels, can we just do Reader's Digest to save a, a good hymnal? Um, yeah. <laughs> now you're preaching. <laughs> Speaking of TD. Um, but, but you think about it, if, when, when a book is brought uh, in, the New, in the New Testament times, Paul would say, look, you're going to read the book of Colossians, you're going to read it publicly. And as you read it publicly, not just one time, it's going to be part of your theology. And you're going to uh, spread it, right? You're going to make copies, and this church is going to do it. And as time goes, is there a general acceptance of it? Uh, so if you want to look at First Enoch, Tertullian, very influential uh, early apologist, um, he believed First Enoch should have been in the canon. By the end of his life, he said, look, I'm apparently the only guy that believes this. Clearly, the church has spoken, not to mention uh, the Jewish rabbis uh, of his time, that this, this shouldn't be inspired. Um, and so Jude, although initially, you know, some didn't like it, I could, I could give you examples of all who, who held to it. Uh, but Tertullian would hold to it, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, um, uh, Gregory of Nazianus, Cyro, Jerusalem, Jerome. Jerome did the Latin Vulgate and all that. They all held to it. So, so should Jude be in the Bible? I think the answer is yes. But this is a big problem with Jude. That it does keep coming up. A lot of people 
question it. All right, let's do this. Let's, let's look at the text itself. Let's look at the good stuff. Verse 1, Jude, a slave, do a loss of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Well, we've already talked about the slavery language uh, there in verse 1. Uh, it, it is note, noteworthy to see that this is common language that even the apostles would use in the New Testament. Uh, so we see this in Paul in Romans 1 and in Titus 1. James uses the same language uh, in his and to Peter. Uh, it's not surprising to see similarity with Second Peter. Um, but uh, here are four examples where in the greeting, uh, this was used. Now, we Americans, you, you've heard my rant about this before. We don't like this language of slavery because of our past. But, but that acts as if being a slave in Roman times was a good thing, right? Now, if you were a slave in Caesar's household, you're probably wealthier than a free farmer outside city gates. And you had some prominence, obviously, right? If you're an intern in the White House, you've got more pull than I do, right? Uh, it's just you, you, you're, you're in, in the know. Um, when Christians came to speak of this, uh, it, it reminded them of their allegiance to Christ, their obedience to him, and that they were bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. And as we'll see, the issue of slavery is the root issue here. If you don't see yourself as a slave of Christ, then Christ's commandments and will become optional. Look, at the end of the day, if, if I'm working retail and the boss says, hey, I want you to do this, if I don't want to do it, I'll quit. I ain't scared. I got a dog, right? But if I am a slave, I don't have a choice. It's a big, big difference. And so he begins with that language of slavery. Uh, he identifies himself as the brother James. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And then you'll notice at the end of verse 1, uh, Jude likes his threes. Those who are called, those who are beloved, and those who are kept for Jesus. I do suspect there is a veiled trinity here. Called by the Spirit, I think that's consistent with biblical theology, beloved in God the Father, kept for, your translation may say kept by Jesus. Anyone have kept by Jesus? All right, that is not a manuscript issue, it's a translation issue. It could go either way. Yeah? You have New American Standard? Yeah. Uh, Nasby loves bond servant. It's, it's stronger than servant, but it's still not slave. Uh, the uh, Christian Standard, does anyone use the Christian Standard Bible? The old Holman Christian Standard? You know, the Baptist Bible? You, you have it? Does it use slave? The Holman said slave when it came out. They made a big deal. It's actually one of their promotional points. We translate Dulos as slave. But I think now they, they updated it to the Christian standard. They dropped Holman. I don't know what he did. They found old tweets, I'm sure. Uh, he's been dead 200 years. Um, but uh, they may have taken that out of the Holman. That'd be interesting to see. And I, I forgot to look it up in the net Bible. Uh, Donnie, you got the message Bible? He's a servant. He's a servant, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's obviously a big debate among scholars. Uh, how do you translate these words in an English context? You cannot take out. There is an English context. I was on the phone. I am a slave. Message used slave? Okay. Well, good. Eugene, Eugene Peterson's all right. Um, so I, I do believe that there is, is a hint of a trinity there, though not clearly stated. But then notice also in verse 2, another three is given. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So you go from called, beloved, and kept to mercy, peace, and love. Three and three. Don't overthink that. It's just, it's just um, not synergy. What, it's not parallelism. I'm looking for a word here. Uh, parallelism will, will get us through, through the evening, I guess. Um, now, you'll notice, if, if you know your New Testament, you've read the letters, you, you can almost quote the greeting from memory. Paul, an apostle, Lord Jesus Christ, with Timothy, our brother, grace and peace to you from our Lord and Father, Jesus Christ. That sound about right? I probably missed a few words. It's okay. Different translation, I'm sure. Now, notice, peace is here, but not grace. <coughs> grace has been replaced with mercy and love. That's odd, isn't it? Is he like anti-grace? No, that, that's not the case at all. You're going to find, particularly starting in verse 3, the core issues he's having to address here is a moral issue that comes out of a bad theology. That's two... Peter and Jude, that, that's, that's their main point. We talked about it in our devotions uh, last week or so. Um, so 
What this movement is doing is they're taking the grace of God, he'll say verse 3, and turn it into a license the sin. So he extends to them not grace because he's about to uh, uh, correct it. So he's, he's going to extend to them grace. He's got to correct it first. So instead of grace, he's going to emphasize mercy, love, and peace. So it's still a traditional greeting. From what we can tell in the New Testament, Christians greeted each other as saying grace and peace to you. Right? That, that was a common greeting. It shows up in the letters, and we have hints of it even outside of the letters that they would say grace and peace. So we may say goodbye, have a good day, uh, God bless you, right? Uh, or bless his heart. That's usually not a good thing. Um, or what I see the meme recently, if a, if a southern woman says, would you say they do not want you to repeat yourself? Or something like that. I, I don't know. Um, but uh, much as we may say God bless you, uh, they would say grace and peace to you. Well, Jude doesn't have that because it's the issue of grace that is under assault. So he says there in verse 3, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who preferred the grace of our God into sensuality, licentiousness. I think Nasby has. It's my, one of my favorite Bible words. You just don't use it anymore. But sensuality uh, and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You see then when he talks about master and Lord, why the word slave is so important in verse one. Look, I'm a slave and I'm unashamed of it. These guys refuse to submit to the lordship and the, the uh, lordship of Jesus and submit to him as, as their master. So, so we, we, we've got um, uh, bookends here from verse 1 to verse, verse 4. And, and what, is, what is the issue here? They're taking grace and they're saying, well, God's love is so big. God's grace is so great. I can do whatever I want and he's going to forgive me. Okay? Um, and that's the problem. Uh, so he begins there. I found it necessary. The phrasing suggests it's a somewhat of an unwelcome task. Uh, this wasn't what I wanted to talk about. It's not what I typically desire to deal with, but here we are anyways. Um, so we see courage here. That word for uh, entrust um, or um, uh, to, to, to uh, necessary to, to write appealing to you, um, it's a word used uh, throughout the Old and New Testament and Jewish tradition, handing down uh, authoritative tradition. Um, uh, so... Um, and then there's that word contend, to contend for the faith. That's probably the word in all of our Bibles. It's a strong word. It refers to the exertion of an athlete. Thus Jude urges his readers not simply to resist false teachers uh, and their perversion of the faith, uh, but they are to actively fight against it. Uh, um, you think about it, that if, if you're in a, if, if you're, um, I used to take karate. The way we uh, fought in karate practice was very different from when we actually fought in tournaments or if necessary in real life, right? When, if, you, if you're trained for running, the thing about running is you don't ever really run at your, your speed. Uh, what you'll do is at short distance, you'll run faster than your pace. And then if you go long runs, you're going to go slower than your race pace. So that when you run, you're going to go faster than what you've been going on long runs, uh, but that allows you to exert more energy you've trained your body for. It's the same sort of idea. It's, it's an athletic term to contend, to fight, to give it your all. You're in the game now. Um, and then in verse 4, he gives us another list of three. I don't know, did I put, put that up? Yeah, here's another list of three. He describes them in three ways. They're ungodly people. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, licentiousness, and they deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So, so this is a front to mercy, peace, and love. Remember, you're called, you're beloved, and you're kept. But these people, they have a very different three here. Uh, they're ungodly people. So um, what it is that, that we have here is, it seems to be this was a common issue in, in, the, in, uh, in the early church. Uh, in the New Testament, we see both extremes of grace. Legalism, book of Galatians, is, is perhaps, either it or James, the first book written in the canon, in New Testament canon, okay? Galatians. What's Galatians about? Turning grace into law, 
right? If you're not circumcised, you don't follow the dietary laws. If you don't vote Republican, you ain't saved, right? You know, two of those three, I'm sure. Um, but but that, 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 that's it, right? It's very legalistic. Well, by Jude, and, and there's a lot of debate regarding the, the, the writing and its relationship with, with Peter we talked about last week. Um, but it, it comes later. It may be an early book, but it's still going to come later in a different context, uh, some, some see Jude even as far as Alexandria, Egypt, and, and, it, and there's, there's a lot of Jews down there. It's probably why Joseph went down to Egypt. There's a large Jewish population. There's a large library there, second largest city, I believe, in Rome at the time. Um, that what you have there is the opposite deal with grace, and that is what's called antinomianism or libertarianism. That is to say, well, on the one end it says, well, I got to keep the law to keep grace. The other says, I don't need to keep anything. I don't need to obey anyone. I, don't, I can do whatever as I want because where sin abounds, to quote Paul, grace abounds all the more. And so if someone says, look, you know, I think that's wrong for you to, to, to do that. Your response then is, well, it doesn't matter. Jesus already forgave me. See how easy that is? Now, in, the, in, in this context, what you have is the cultural context of Greco-Roman world coming into the church. I'm glad that would never happen today, like in an election year with international pandemic and cultural chaos. I can't imagine that ever happened within an evangelical church in America. So what you have in Greek thought is everything is dualistic. You have the body and you have the soul. Now, what you get with the early and later Gnostics, these are the people that produced the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Mary and the Emphasy Gospel of Thomas and all that. Is, is they take that, that Greek idea and they sprinkle it with Christianity. So what they'll say is, the flesh is bad, the spirit is good. See the duality. Everything's flesh and, 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 and spirit. And because of that, there's two ways to respond. One is a strict religious identity in, in that you're going to be um, very poor, you're not going to eat much, and, and because you're, you're trying to escape the flesh, Okay. The other extreme is you just indulge the flesh. It's not the real you. The real you is not the body. The real you is the spirit inside of you. Why well, This creeps into Christianity even today, and, and I find myself having to, to correct it. C.S. Lewis is credited with a, uh, with a quote like that, and he never did say it. Um, but anyways, now this shows up today. Everyone is either a Judaizer, legalist, or, or a Gnostic. This shows up today. Think about how easy it is for us today. It used to be in the era of Christianity— my feelings must conform to reality. We understand that, right? It's common sense to you and me because we're Christian. We live in a Gnostic age where reality must now conform to me. So if I feel like I'm a different gender, if I feel that I'm a victim, if I feel that I am oppressed, then I am those things. It doesn't matter the evidence. That, that, that reality must now come into my reality. It must fit the, the way I want the shape. That's Gnosticism. So when Oprah will say that, that you just, or Disney or Osteen or anyone say, just look inside of you and that inner spark is very, it's new agey, but it's very Gnostic. There's an inner spark within you. And in those gospels, they, they encourage the disciples to, to find themselves essentially. Uh, they're on this journey. They got to find themselves. And inside themselves is that little spark of the divine. And you just got to let it out, right? So that Olstein quote is, um, Jesus calmed the storm because he was calm within. He brought peace because he was at peace. That's the power you have. That's Gnosticism and still around by a different name, uh, but, but it is still around. Um, and uh, you notice there in verse four, um, Jude says it was written long ago. Some think this is a reference to two. Peter, I've got a commentary that says Jude came first. It doesn't matter. Uh, 2 Peter 1 and 2 says, false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who uh, will secretly bring in destructive heresies even to denying the master who brought them. You see the similarity, denying the master who bought them? That's Jude. We just read it there in verse 4. Bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, the language you see in Jude 3 and 4, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. So the thinking is, is that Jude is saying, look, I've got a template here. I'm going to remind you of what the apostle said, what he 
what he said is going to happen is happening. That's typical of the apostles. Read uh, Paul's final words to the Ephesians in, in Acts 20. He says, when I leave, wolves are going to come in. It's going to happen. You've got to be ready for it. And Jude is saying, look, the apostles warned us. Now it is here. Um, so what Jude is going to attack is the growing issue in uh, Christianity right now, just the, the culture in general. And that is antinomianism. I can do whatever I want, live however I want, and God will still forgive me. This is why you can go to anyone on the street and say, um, despite all your flaws and sins, if you were to stand before a holy and righteous God, you go to heaven. What's their answer? I'm a good person. Now, my neighbor is a jerk, but I'm a really good person. All right? and, and that comes from this sort of antinomianism. You know, if God only understood why I did those things I did, he'd let me in. You know? um, so what are some points of, of application regarding uh, these first four verses? Just some things to think about. Uh, first of all, uh, contending for the faith is not synonymous with being contentious. Can I, can, I, can I complain about the Southern Baptist Convention for a second? I am a SBC guy, love SBC. The problem is that the Southern Baptist Convention, we Baptists, I should say, we have a habit, we want uh, cooperation and we want argumentation. Drives me up a wall. We Baptists fight over everything. You can go to any convention, state, national convention, and the things we fight about will not save a single soul next to you. Okay? And unfortunately, the convention right now is, is under the delusion that unless you're a Trumpian conservative, you're, you must be liberal. If, if I can be frank with you. Trump has not been good for the Southern Baptist Convention, I'll just be honest with you, because of the attitude that comes with it. There's a purity test right now. So there have been accusations my alma mater is liberal, which is ironic because the current president uh, you know, was under threat because he dared to make it conservative in the 1990s. <laughs> it's just like, have you read a history book? Right? I mean, if anyone has had to fight the libs, it's, it's Dr. Mueller, right? Um, but because there isn't a bowing down to a right-wing conservative agenda in the SBC, you must therefore be liberal. This is a problem of tribalism, by the way. And when Christians get caught up in this, instead of contending, we become contentious. That drives me crazy. Drives me crazy. Um, uh, praying in tongues was a big issue when I was at Boyce. And I had a friend of mine who's his, his dream in life was to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. The problem is, is that he, he could barely show up to the one class he signed up per semester, right? He was faithful to having lunch with professors and staff, but not the class. It just never made sense to me. He was very, uh, he would make a good local mayor. I'll put it that way, all right? Um, and uh, I remember he, he would just not stop talking about this. And I was serving at a church that believed in private languages. It's not my personal belief, but I wasn't going to fight it. I was just a youth guy, um, barely hanging on because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but man, it just about nearly divided the entire uh, uh, convention over this. You ain't Baptist unless, well, now we, we're doing some of the same stuff. Look, contending does not mean the same thing as contentious. About every month, I'll get a phone call from a church member, former church member or something, and they'll say, is it true? The current president of the Southern Baptist Convention said this, or thinks this, or that we're liberal now. And I always do this. I say, no. Knowing they want more details. No. For anything else, you need to know, we're not liberal, y'all. <laughs> right? So if you get on the internet to look it up, shut the computer down. Okay? Right? There are crazy people out there making claims that just have, have no basis. Look, you can contend for the faith as we should. That doesn't mean you, you be contentious. Uh, I think another way to illustrate this is I believe that political correctness is um, censorship, censorship, okay? What you're saying is you, if you want to be accepted by broader society, cannot use this term that was used for the previous 60 years, and no one had a problem with it. And if you use it, you are therefore ashamed. It's part of shame culture. Religion culture is always shame culture. We're very much of a shame culture. Check your tweets, by the way. Um, well, the opposite problem is we come in and say, well, I don't want to be political correct. I'm just going to say whatever it is I think I'm going to say. You can either like it or you don't. I don't care. So we, we instead of contending 
and using our heads, we become contentious. That is not what Jude is promoting here. Second thing, I'm probably in enough trouble today. It is, continuing for the faith is a responsibility for all believers. Go back to verse 2. Who is Jude writing to? Local pastor? Local apologist? Professors in, in, in the uh, Baptist seminary there in Alexandria or wherever he's writing from or to? No, he's writing to you. To the called, to the beloved, and those being kept by or, or for Jesus. Is that you? I sure hope so. If not, believe the gospel and repent. All right? He's saying it is important that the local church contend for the faith. It is amazing, amazing what a church will tolerate if they like someone enough. The very first interview I ever did for a, for, for a pastor, to be a pastor... It was a church in Henry County. Don't need to know any more details. Couldn't tell you anything else about the church now. Uh, my wife was very, very pregnant. Like, literally, she, she had her shoes off during the entire three-hour interview. Uh, and, and they viewed us as that stereotype. I'm just going to tell you. And it's Henry County. Like, like, they got a lot of room to talk. And there was a theological issue, uh, a, a polity issue, something in the church that I disagreed with. All the students from Southern disagreed with it. And they knew that. But I offered to say... I will allow this to be grandfathered in, but moving forward, we will not continue this. That was, that was my compromise. I don't know if I would do that now, but at the time, 23, 24 years old, okay, I'll offer that. Um, and I remember when I kept saying, but the Bible is clear on this. Their answer was, yeah, but you haven't met this person yet. They're the sweetest person you'll ever meet. Like, I have no doubt about that. The worst people in the world have really, like, close friends, okay? That's not the issue. The issue is the Bible is very, very clear. It's amazing what the average believer will tolerate um, because we want to avoid um, uh, conflict. Uh, now, we don't mind conflict if, if, if we're in a rage, but we, we want to avoid general conflict, um, and, and uh, therefore we, we tolerate some things we, we shouldn't. Also notice verse 3, um, that word you, I found it necessary to write to you, is plural. That's one of the problems with English is it's hard to tell what's singular and plural. Uh, so in your Bibles, you can write y'all. I find it necessary to write to y'all. Ever tell you a story about South Korean doing Greek? Uh, it's Greek syntax. So we, there's a large number of South Koreans at Southern. It's the, it's the second largest, uh, largest group. So you, whites, obviously. But as South Koreans, I think, are more than African Americans. And that's increasing, but there's, there's, and I befriend a lot of them. They're awesome people. I just, just loved hanging out with them. One in particular, you don't care. I had, I was in class with, with one, and uh, he was translating, and, and, and we would be asked to parse, parse that verb. And in, in this instance, he, he said, um, second person plural, um, Ewan's running. And so he translated, Ewan's went running, or whatever the, the, the verse was. And the professor said, you parse that again for me? I thought, well, he must have got something wrong. And he went through it. Ewan's running. Like, Ewan's? You're Korean, right? Where did you get Ewan's? I don't know. Like, it's not like English is his native tongue. So he's learning a third language in his second language so he can apply it to his first language, right? I mean, like, work with him here, Doc, okay? <laughs> I mean, I'm not from Pennsylvania, right? Them Yankees, but he's doing better than I would, and I speak English. Barely. Um, so, y'all, I found it necessary to write to y'all to contend for the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. Thirdly, quickly, contending for the faith is a primary responsibility. It is not a secondary issue. Think about it. If, if, if you were to, to watch your, your preferred tribal news coverage, and they say the President of the United States is going to give a speech in an hour, and it's going to be about COVID-19. You're going to tune in. Check that out. Now, they're going to tell you everything he's going to say, which defeats the purpose of him saying it. Nevertheless, they're going to bring experts on for an hour. You're ready for him to give you an update about COVID. President comes on there, he's in the Oval Office, and he says, my fellow Americans, my intentions was to talk to you about our ongoing struggle with COVID-19. But it has come to my attention that one of our, uh, um, um, where ambassadors go, anyways, we're under attack, and we must send American troops, we're at war. Now, the issue he was going to talk about, is it important? Yes. But for this moment, switching to a, a military issue means that this is a primary issue at the moment. Jude wants to talk about their shared salvation story. 
They have a common gospel and that that is discipling them. That's what he wants to write about. In this case, it would be more like Ephesians. But it's come to his attention something so pressing he must deal with it now. Which means contending for the faith is not something we can wait until business meeting. It must be something that must be addressed now. And it is of of primary uh, importance. Um, And that means that when it comes to contending, we must know what are primary issues. Politics is not one of them. Unless a church can handle someone who votes blue and someone who votes red sitting by each other, we have a problem. We have a real problem with that. Or how many times we, we, we will make it over uh, musical preferences. By the way, take, take the worship wars. Uh, when did we really start singing those hymns? Like piano, organ, hymns. Well, that culture really comes from the 1950s, okay? When you start adding guitars in a band, when did that start? 1970s. You want to know what we're fighting over, worship wars? Which decade is better, 1950s or 1970s? The answer is the 1980s, of course. But why are we fighting this? Or the 1920s, Calvin Coolidge, my man, right? That's, that's, that's the best president. I'll fight you for it. Uh, I will contend for it, or rather be contentious. Um, but unfortunately, we often eat ourselves alive over things that aren't even secondary issues or even tertiary, things that really aren't worth our time. So we must learn what is primary. Finally, continue for the faith requires biblical faithfulness. Notice the language there in verse 3. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Notice the language is, is that we have received something from God. And, and it isn't our right or authority to change it, update it, or anything else. It is our responsibility to pass it on to another generation. Um, Dr. York uses this illustration quite a bit, but he's not the only one to to use this is is often said that uh, when a conservative believer will say, "Well, the Bible says X," the response is, "I am too humble to say I know what that the Bible says and means." Well, uh, my thesis was on a movement that made that argument their primary argument for liberalism. Basically, um, you can read my thesis if if you really have nothing to do during COVID lockdown. Um, and the problem with that statement is it's very arrogant. Because the presumption is you're too humble to read the Bible, but you're confident enough to change it. The response is, I am too humble to tell God he got something wrong. Humble interpretation is a hard, difficult, long process where you understand you're standing on the shoulders of giants who are smarter than you, wiser than you, and frankly better Christians than you. Maybe we should listen to their voice as well as the Spirit's. So, the authority of contention is the Bible, which takes us to Jesus. So there you go, first four verses. There's a lot here in Jude, and hopefully we will enjoy what else he has to say for us. Any questions we can dodge before we get out late? That clock is fast again, so you can't fool me. All right, well, um, the word on the street is that the governor's going to give an update on the 13th. And the rumor is he's going to reopen some, some stuff. You state workers, do you know? Or did I just get that off the Instagram? And it's got to be true if it's on Facebook. Okay. Well, hopefully we'll know by Wednesday. Until then, we can't hold hands. Um, but how about we stand up and close out in prayer?